From beach towels to tea towels and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. You're with Trish Wood and The Edit on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Hi, everybody. This is Trish Wood, and this is The Edit. And we've got some really interesting things happening for you this morning. For me, the main one that I've been researching like mad is the idea that Elon Musk has had a pretty significant climb down yet again on the free speech issue. And uh, this is after months and months and months of trying to restore his reputation after having a bit of a fallout over the Twitter files with Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger. He was declaring some fealty to free speech again on the Israel Gaza issue or the Israel-Palestinian issue. And yet yesterday he did, this is my analysis, I'm just going to say it, what looked to be a photo opportunity with Netanyahu, who took him on a kind of an atrocity tour um, to, and in my view, it was done, obviously Netanyahu did it for a reason, but it looks like Elon is maybe responding, I would say buckling under the pressure being placed on him, which is not insignificant. I mean, it's, it's massive what's been happening to him. Since the conflict began, um, his, originally his, his sort of um, mediating what was happening on Twitter was quite even-handed. There's bad stuff on both sides of this going on that either can go on or can't go on, but he's only really being criticized for people who are being critical of Israel, and then any criticism of Israel gets scooped up in this anti-Semitic label, which gets blown up through every possible channel that can come back at him. And of course, X being what it is, it's landed now with some major, major advertisers. So he ended up, I'm just going to read you what the New York Times said about it. And then I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how the New York Times itself would have played in to what's happening with Elon on the ground with Netanyahu doing this incredibly obvious uh, kind of a cleanup on aisle three for Elon's uh, reputation with people who tend to be pro-Israel. Here is what the New York Times wrote. Elon Musk traveled to Israel and met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Monday, touring the scene of the Hamas attack in a visit that appeared aimed at calming the outcry over his endorsement of an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory on X, the social media platform he owns. Dozens of major brands suspended their advertising on X after Mr. Musk this month agreed with a post that accused Jewish communities of pushing hatred against whites that they claim to want people to stop using against them. Uh, Kind of a complicated idea. The flight of advertisers threatened to cost X tens of millions of dollars, and the White House denounced Mr. Musk for abhorrent promotion of anti-Semitic and racist hate. That is a really extreme condemnation. How do you run a business when you're accused of these things? On Tuesday, after arriving in Israel, Mr. Musk wrote on X that actions speak louder than words, wearing a flak jacket and this kind of weird little plate that was obviously too small for him. I guess he's a big guy. Um, He toured Kfar Aza and Israeli kibbutz where dozens of people were killed during the Hamas terrorist attack on October 7th. 
So that footage was shared by Mr. Netanyahu's office. Obviously, it's a PR play for Israel. No question about that. Um, he was taken through the blackened ruins of a house, Mr. Netanyahu said on X, that he gave Mr. Musk the tour to show him up close the crimes against humanity committed by Hamas. In a conversation with Mr. Netanyahu broadcast on X, Mr. Musk called the visit to Kfar as a jarring and said he also had been shown footage of the October 7th massacre that he found troubling. So what's interesting about this is none of this information would be new to Elon Musk. I mean, he was following it. He knows there's video. Most of us have seen the video that's in the notorious atrocity video, the stuff that's actually in there. Um, Mr. Musk said in agreement that it was important to get rid of the ones who are hell-bent on murdering Jewish people, though he also added that it was important to minimize civilian casualties in the enclave. The rebuttal is often made that, well, Israel has killed civilians also in Gaza, Mr. Musk said, but there is an important difference here, which is that Israel tries to avoid killing civilians. So that is a huge Israeli talking point that he is repeating as truth, which means there's been a, a bit of a victory there. So I just want to comment on that story and how it came about. So that story was written by Matthew Impoki at Big and Ryan Mack. So I looked up Ryan Mack's coverage of X or Twitter, and there has been a negative story about X and Twitter and Elon Musk almost every week for the last six weeks. Here are the headlines. Elon Musk visits Israel amid backlash against his endorsement of anti-Semitic post. So the decision is made it was anti-Semitic. That's declarative. He says, X, X may lose up to $75 million in revenue as more advertisers pull out. X sues Media Matters over research on ads next to anti-Semitic posts. Here we are on uh, November 18th. SpaceX makes progress in second launch. That's not critical. Uh, here, November 18th, an investigation found many workplace injuries at SpaceX sites, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, here's November 17th. Advertisers flee access outcry over Musk's endorsement of anti-Semitic post grows. So the New York Times, uh, the reason I did that litany is because the New York Times has been reporting negatively about Elon Musk on a range of issues, but specifically this one, um, weekly, if not more so. So why is that? So I did do just a little, a, like a mini deep, deep dive, if there could be a half deep dive, on the reporter who, when he was at BuzzFeed, were, was known for his really heavy-handed critiques of Elon Musk. So he went from BuzzFeed and ended up at the New York Times, now reporting on Elon Musk. And it, it feels like maybe Elon Musk isn't getting a fair shake. That aside, that aside, how does one run a commercially viable free speech platform, and I mean actually free speech, not lip service free speech, in the age we live in now, where when the big corporations get scared, they have all of this diversity, equity, equity and inclusion stuff that's been making them make contracts with people like Dylan Mulvaney, because they're all scared. This stuff scares people. They don't want to be associated with it, even if it's false. And so how do you run a free speech platform that is vulnerable to the vagaries of something like advertising coming from 
really big companies who were starting to peel off, right? This is Elon Musk's moment of truth. And he may be trying to play it like he can have it both ways by claiming he's free speech, but he's seeing both sides, whatever. But it doesn't feel like that. I believe, this is my opinion, he may regret having that photo opportunity with Netanyahu sometime from now when history starts actually assessing what went on here. Because there is a hashtag now that Elon must go to Gaza. We'll see if he actually does. Because he is now forever going to be looking like the person who took a particular stand. Obviously, everybody should be against terrorism. Nobody embraces that. But this story is way, way, way more complicated than just saying, yeah, what they did was terrible and you need to fight back, especially when you are talking about the murder of civilians. We're going to be at 20,000 of those in Gaza not far from now. And there are actually big numbers happening in uh, in the West Bank now, too. Those numbers are climbing. And even in the the hostage numbers I was reading this morning that um, for the amount of hostages that have been released by Hamas, Israel's grabbing more in the West Bank. So there needs to be a real reckoning around how corporations that rely on advertising or corporate funding in some way can actually maintain an arm's length free speech realism in what they're doing and not be attacked this way. I mean, this I, I think this was so serious, this attack on him from multiple places, not just including Media Matters, who actually, as I understand it, misrepresented what, where he'd placed his advertisements. Um, they were not near some of the more inflammatory pro-Palestine uh, comments, according to some work. It might have been Glenn Greenwald who did that, actually. But, but how do you survive? And, and if, if Elon Musk can't survive running Twitter, or X as it's called now, as a free speech platform, we are all in a lot of trouble. Where do we go from here? And this is what happens, just to finish off here, uh, when corporations do these kind of government, private partnerships where they have a big voice in what they call the social dynamics of the country in which they're living. I don't think they should have that. I, I don't I don't feel like people who run big companies should be able to pick causes and channel tons of money into them. What if that person is a psychopath or something? Like what what like there has to be a neutral way for people to get news and information and on social media. And I'll, my last comment on that is going to be look at what a disaster it was during COVID-19 and the Ukraine war to the beginning of the Ukraine war when everybody was all in. Censorship on Twitter and elsewhere around COVID-19 and Ukraine has cost lives. There's no question about that. It's cost lives. So we need to really be thinking about how do we facilitate free speech in the age of this kind of corporate activism and activism by the media too, who really, really stirred this pot right? So our guest today to talk about this and a whole bunch of other things is the estimable independent journalist Eva K. Bartlett, who the last time I spoke to was under fire in the Donbass in Ukraine. She is the real deal, people. She doesn't just show up in a flak jacket and lipstick in a safe place on a hotel balcony. She's actually in there doing the hard work of actual journalism. And uh, we're going to be back with Eva K. Bartlett in just a minute to talk about these and lots of other big things that are happening in the world today.
This Trish Wood on the Yetta. Back in a moment. TNT Radio's Patrick Henningsen. There's a dark cloud which is gathering over Ukraine. This has been an absolute disaster. In the last month alone, as I reported previously, Ukraine's lost 13,000 troops in October. So what does that mean? Well, you can guess that recruitment is probably down. So right now, the government in Kiev, the Zelensky government's doing forced conscription. Morale is at an all-time low. Uh, we've also seen conscientious objectors uh, who are taking to social media, like Telegram, who reported uh, that they were just finished a six-month prison sentence uh, after refusing to go to the front line. Some of the forced conscripts rebelled, were imprisoned for six months, did a six-month sentence, and then the day before their release, they were put into a van and then sent to the front line. I kid you not. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Right now, the forgotten poor are waiting for healing and care. For life-saving medical care, for a chance to live with dignity and hope, they are waiting for Mercy Ships and you. Mercy Ships is the largest floating civilian hospital in the world with volunteer medical staff and crew who donate their time to save lives. And now, as our newest state-of-the-art hospital ship sets sail, Mercy Ships will double our ability to reach children and adults who need us now. Without the work of Mercy Ships, these patients don't have another option. Mercy Ships is answering the call to serve suffering people who have nowhere else to turn. Together, we are going to some of the world's most desperate places and bringing a wave of hope and healing to those who need it most. To learn more about this wave of hope, go to mercyships.org today. Today's News Talk Radio. Now we're talking. TNT. Hi, everybody. This is Trish Wood, and you're with the edit. And we're just about to connect to Eva K. Bartlett, an independent journalist who, as I said earlier, she is the real deal, taking risks and fighting through walls of propaganda and censorship to to get to the bottom of some of what is happening in the world hotspots. And as I said, the last time I spoke to Eva, she was under fire in the Donbass, and you could hear that it was a very dramatic interview, one of the most dramatic I've done. Uh, you could hear the shells coming in as she was talking and barely flinching, so that was pretty incredible. But anyway, here's Eva. Hi, Eva, how are you? Hi, Trish. Thank you so much for having me back on. Um, it's really good to hear from you. And yeah, I, I do remember that interview. Um, and I was very grateful at that time for you having me on your show. Oh, well, you know, I, I, it's my business too. And uh, I always admire people taking the risks. It seems that those risks are taken by few and fewer and fewer journalists these days, including in the Israel-Gaza situation where many of them most of them, all of the legacy media, are unless they're embedded with the IDF, are on the other side of the line. And uh, I'm not going to be cranky, but I wonder how many of them are standing in the hotel balcony where they're kind of safe and sound, wearing their flak jackets, right? I mean, it's a different, it's a different day, isn't it, Eva, than the olden days? It is, and uh, since we're talking about media and the way they cover things, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware that I was in Gaza during the 2008-2009 Israeli war in Gaza, but at that time, of course, it was very different back then. You know, we didn't have smartphones, um, and it was the same dearth of electricity, and I was uh, 
well, I think we'll get into it. But anyway, at one point, I was able to do an interview with CBC, and they had contacted me, I think, a week prior, and they said, we're interested in doing an interview with you. And I was still relatively inexperienced with media. And they said, we're interested in doing an interview with you next week. And I was like, why next week? Why not right now? You know, I was people are dying right now. Nowhere is safe. In any case, the reason they wanted to do the interview the, the following week was that they lined up a Canadian in Israel because they wanted to show balance in a completely unbalanced situation. And so I yeah. didn't know any of that. I did my interview talking about what I was seeing with Palestinian medics, just talking about the horrors of what I was seeing. And the, the guy in uh, wherever he was in Israel was pretty calm and relaxed. And, you know, the, the, and unfortunately, their strategy backfired because there was no comparison to what he was seeing and what we were enduring in Gaza. Um, uh, yeah. But I think I haven't been able to find that interview since. I don't know if it's been wiped from CBC, but, um, yeah, it, the, the whole point about them not wanting to speak to me until they had a, a counterpart lined up um, was just mind-boggling to me. Well, that's an interesting journalistic point, uh, and I'm glad you brought it up because there, there's no doubt, and this is sort of what we're trying to do here a bit on TNT, is bring you what legacy media is not bringing you. They do, first of all, the coverage of, of the Palestinians and Israel has been completely asymmetrical in favor of Israel's talking points, almost, well, for almost forever, I'll, I'll say that. Um, yeah. So then all of a sudden when they have someone on saying, well, this is what it's like actually where I am, they have to have someone on to balance that out. So that kind of decreases any possibility of symmetry anyway. They don't do that when they're talking about Israel. They don't say, so we've got to have a Palestinian on. But when you have a Palestinian on or someone talking about what's happening on the ground in Gaza, they need a counterpoint. And that, just for people watching this, that, that is how it works, right? That is how the disinformation coming from legacy media works. And what we're trying to do here at TNT is counter that a little bit. So just I'm just making that point. Um, yeah, I, I'm wondering. I, I'm wondering also if you could just talk. And I, this is a personal question I wanted to ask, or a question for me. Um, I was watching last week and the week before some of the courage under fire of the medical people in Gaza. And regardless of anybody's feelings about the Palestinians and the conflict, I kept hearing over and over again from Palestinian doctors in Gaza, in Al-Shifa and other places about how they were not going to leave their posts saying, I won't leave my patients, I will die here before I leave my patients. And many of them did. That is in and of itself a remarkable story that is not being told, is it? Absolutely. Um, I, I also have seen those interviews and those um, updates uh, from such uh, medical professionals. And uh, since I can relate on a personal level from my experiences, I was riding in the ambulances primarily of the Palestinian Red Crescent Society, but sometimes the government ambulances. None of them carried weapons. None of them carried armed men. They only carried wounded or dead. And these heroic uh, Palestinian rescuers that were going to, this is in 2009 I'm referring to, they were going to some of the hardest hit areas in Jabalia, Beit Lahia, Beit Hanun, so all very much northern and northeastern Gaza. The Israeli land invasion had already uh, begun, so they were facing everything, you know, they're facing now, um, and the tank fire. And they were, they were risking their lives to try to go save uh, civilians 
knowing that they could come under Israeli tank fire, for example. And a lot of these people had been volunteer medics. They were doing it because they wanted to save their people. They were not doing it necessarily for the money if they were volunteer medics. And they did it in the face of this danger, which they'd faced in, um, uh, in 2008, and uh, which they would go on to face in later um, Israeli assaults. So uh, I, I personally have the highest regards for Palestinian doctors and medics because they really, um, you know, as you were saying, uh, no matter how Palestinians are represented by the corporate media, what I saw, well, what I saw from Palestinians, they're very loving and cultured people, but the medics were absolute heroes. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. I certainly, you know, I've written about medics in wartime, you know, from the U.S. Marine Corps and other places with, uh, you know, where they have these, where the soldiers are, are the medics, and they are also extraordinary, super dedicated to what they do. And that's the only other comparable uh, example I can think of, of, of people staying in hospitals, doctors staying in hospitals they know are going to be bombed. And there was that amazing story of... Um, one doctor who gave an interview on Democracy Now! and then two weeks later he was gone. And in the Democracy Now! interview, he said, I'm not leaving my patients. I didn't go to medical school for 14 years for nothing. And then he was gone. It was a very, very moving moment. Um, let's pick this up in a minute. I want to go to a break. And uh, we'll be back in a couple minutes with, with Eva Bartlett. TNT Radio News. <laughs> News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Experts are warning we are staring down the barrel of a humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza, where hundreds of thousands of people are on the brink of famine. Israel has been accused of replacing Palestinians freed from its prisons with fresh detainees captured in the West Bank. And Finland has now threatened to close its entire border with Russia, accusing Moscow of waging hybrid warfare on the country by funneling asylum seekers through its border checkpoints. Globalist agendas, democratic rights at risk, corruption, propaganda, it never stops. For the news and views silenced by the mainstream media, by government and corporations, vote one. TNT Radio, free speech always has a home here. Stay up to date with the latest live news and current affairs delivered by our lineup of expert commentators and hosts. Listen to TNT Radio anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk, this is TNT Radio. Trish Wood back on the edit with Eva K. Bartlett. Uh, and she's in Moscow, and we've got her um, on the phone. The The line wasn't working. Sometimes this happens on these remote locations, but uh, the information is still valid, so we're going for it. Um, Eva, you said something really interesting in our chat just before the break, and that was that um, Palestinians are very cultured people, which flies in the face of the current dehumanization media narrative that has been propagated by many, many people who should know better. Uh, please expand on that for me so people can have some understanding of what you were talking about. Yeah, thank you, Trish. Um, well, uh, for example, Palestinians value education very highly in a place like Gaza, which, uh, as you and I'm sure your listeners know, is completely locked in. Palestinians have no ability to travel or to do much of anything to work, to exist at this point. Uh, Palestinians have stri uh, still striven uh, to get education, and there are so many examples of 
when I went to Gaza in November 2008, I met students that were waiting to go outside to universities uh, abroad where they had scholarships to study, but they were being denied uh, exit by the Israeli and Egyptian authorities. Um, so they were being prevented from tr uh, accessing that higher education, which they, they wanted and were completely uh, competent in, in getting. Palestinians have, uh, I don't have the statistics at hand, but they have a very high rate of excellence in education. Um, and, I mean, this, this doctor that you were talking about as well, uh, I mean, um, you know, I, I think uh, that the stereotype of the Palestinians is it's so much so that that's, it's important that you did mention this doctor because people, unfortunately, due to media, due to Hollywood, due to basically messaging in every aspect of our lives, um, I, if people are not careful, they will believe Palestinians are backwards, um, have no uh, musical, musical culture, any, any sort of culture, but in fact they have a very deep culture. Um, it's just that we're not allowed to hear about it or see it. Uh, if you, um, well, they've been canceling Palestinian literature. Sorry, I was just going to say they've been canceling yeah. Palestinian literature festivals all over the place, haven't they? Uh, that's really, I mean, it's like they did with anything to do with Russia uh, as of 2022, yep. uh, you know, and it's just uh, um, people can put aside what they think about the respective governments or groups in question, but to cancel people as, as a whole and can cancel their culture, their authors, their, their poets, their painters, their dancers, it's just absolutely ludicrous. You know, and at the same time, uh, I'm sure you're aware, Trish, but maybe, I don't know if your listeners are, but the Israeli leadership have been very um, open about their intent to kill, to genocide Palestinians. I mean, and this is not the first time. I remember hearing these calls for genocide, for uh, destroying Gaza to the Stone Age back in 2012. Back in 2009, after that war, I don't know who, who created these T-shirts, but there was a T-shirt that came out with an image of a pregnant Palestinian woman um, in an Israeli sniper scope, and the T-shirt said, a one-shot, two kills. I mean, their blatant disregard for Palestinian lives, their viewing them as non-humans, has been expressed in, in manifold ways. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm not asking for Israelis to be canceled, of course, but it's just, it's just so ironic and hypocritical that Palestinians who are, are truly the victims here uh, and have been for over seven decades, um, on top of which they are being depicted so heinously and having their culture erased by the West, by the people who are perpetrating and backing the perpetrators of their genocide. Yeah, and I, I'll just push back a little bit when you say that the Palestinians are the victims here, that lots of people watching and listening to this show would say, well, what about October 7th? And and, and one can debate what that actually was, but obviously it was inflammatory obviously it was murderous and and wrong um but in in the in the main there are people who have been looking at the situation and feel that it's it's kind of asymmetrical that the palestinians have been victimized for for decades and so it's not that part of it is not all of that that easy to understand or to talk about really in simplistic terms but i i totally understand what you're saying one of the things i did want to ask you about is i am seeing um what feels a little bit like mass hysteria and when i viewed the um pro-israel demonstration in dc and the chanting about no ceasefire began, I thought this is, this feels wrong. Now, obviously, 
Israelis feel they want to protect themselves and they feel that continuing the bombardment is perhaps the only way to do that. But uh, my concern is how they came to feel that way, right? That's because the bombardment actually isn't going to make them any safer. It's probably a big security threat to them. So it feels like there's an element of something else that's been opened in this, in this story that um, I wonder if people won't come to regret one day. You wonder if what? Oh, people won't come to regret. Um, yeah. Look, I, I, I want to, I also want to, I guess, uh, uh, reply to, and I respect what you had to say. I, you know, I'm somebody who's seen a lot of death and I don't want anyone to die. You know, if it was, it was a yeah. perfect world, you know, nobody would be dying except of old age or whatever. Um, but yeah. I have to, I have to stress that under international law, Palestinians do have the right to resist their occupation. And the thing is about October 7th, it is murky as heck, the actual events which took place. We got the Israeli narrative, which included initially, I don't know what their initial numbers were, 1,400 uh, civilians killed by Hamas, as they said. Um, they, uh, some sources cited 40 beheaded babies, and that turned out to be a lie from an Israeli soldier that was cited without any sort of um, uh, evidence given. It was just cited as credulously, um, just like we heard from Ukrainian authorities claiming Russian soldiers were raping babies, and that turned out to be a lie from the mouth of a Ukrainian official. But um, in terms of what happened October 7th, I don't have all the answers, but more and more incriminating uh, testimonies and evidence is coming out of Israeli media, including the testimonies that we heard and saw some weeks ago of Israelis in kibbutzes saying, you know, we were under fire from Israel. And more recently, we have testimonies from Israeli soldiers saying, and helicopter pilots saying, uh, you know, they were firing massively into the crowd, not knowing at whom they were firing. So I'm, I'm not whitewashing anything. I'm just saying we still don't know exactly what happened. But in that article, now the one with the one of the articles that addressed the Apache helicopters was in one of the most uh, prime Israeli media, Haaretz. And I think it was in that same article. They also said Hamas did not initially know that the festival was going on. It was not one of their targets. Their targets. I mean, I don't know if Haaretz went on to make this point, but their targets were military targets uh, along the border fence with Gaza. So. I'm just yeah. saying, um, yeah, I'm just saying there's a lot of murkiness still at this point. Yeah, uh, and I, 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 and I want to respond to that. I want to respond to that because I think the point is this, that people will say, well, what does it matter if atrocities happened or didn't happen? They still killed a bunch of people, and that's fair game. But, but what's happened is that the atrocities have become the reason and the justification for the relentless bombardment of Gaza. So it does matter if what they're saying what? is true or if it's been massaged, et cetera, the 40 beheaded babies so then, was so said then by everybody. Legal, right, so yeah, then sorry? we go back decades, then we go back decades and look at all of the atrocities committed by the Israeli state against as Palestinian yeah. civilians. Don't even talk about the resistance, just against Palestinian civilians. And these atrocities are so numerous, I couldn't begun uh, to um, uh, articulate how many. So if we want to take the line that what Israel is doing now, killing uh, at modest estimates 15,000 Palestinians in Gaza, um, you know, uh, something like four to 6,000, depending on which statement you read, are children. 
um, and, and injuring, you know, over 30,000, if not more, et cetera, et cetera. If we look at that, and that is uh, an, a response to what is called the atrocities of October 7th, what about the seven decades of atrocities uh, Israel has inflicted on Palestinians and uh, native to the land, you know? What, you know, if the response uh, Israel is um, committing right now is so um, disproportionate, I mean, would, you, would, would we call for Palestinians to enact the same disproportionate disproportionate response against Israelis? Well, and what what I think has been made clear... Sorry, Eve, I was going to say what has been made clear about this debate even, and and I I am merely saying that if Israel is going to use atrocities as their justification, then they should be true and they should be checked by an independent body because some of the more inflammatory ones have proved to not be true. And it shouldn't be wrong to point that out. That is that is what I'm saying. But the other yeah. point you're making, which is which is not a small point, is that we are now facing a world in which the life of one infant is important and the lives of other infants on the other side of a geographical line are not important. And that that has yeah. become more and more clear as this thing goes on. And I think historically that's going to be one of the things people look back on and go, wow, do we ever, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's such an obvious dehumanization of the Palestinian people and their children. There was one, uh, I forget who it was, it was somebody I think in the Israeli cabinet or a spokesman or something who challenged an anchor who said, well, what about the Palestinian babies who are being killed? And he said, how, you know, how dare you compare an Israeli baby to a Palestinian, and it was like, it was jarring. But slowly yeah. and slowly, we're, we're, we are morally being dragged into thinking and saying things that we wouldn't in order to justify something that maybe, maybe one day will be perceived as unjustifiable. Can I turn, you're in Moscow, right, Eva? I am, yes. Can, I, can we turn just to Russia and Ukraine for a minute? Because that story has been orphaned. A little bit by Gaza, hasn't it? Um, it just tell me generally what the status of the conflict is now. I mean, people have been saying Ukraine's losing, Ukraine's losing, it can't win, there needs to be a peace agreement. Is that the gist of what you feel is still happening on the ground there? Well, I have to say you're absolutely right, and I'm also, in a sense, guilty of uh, turning my attention more to what's happening in Gaza. It's, it's deeply personal for me, uh, having spent three years there uh, and, and two Israeli wars, but um, I, I do still follow, obviously, news coming out of Ukraine, out of Donbass. Uh, for example, just today I saw the Donbass um, Minister of Foreign Affairs updated that since the uh, start of uh, the conflict. So by that, let's see, actually they say from the period of January 1st uh, this year to November, um, okay, wait, that's, no, the start of the conflict, I'm sorry. They, they say 9,000 people have been killed um, and 13,000 wounded. So, I mean, that's from 2014 on, and that's only in the Donbass Republic, it's, it's or sorry, the DPR, it's not the Lugansk area. Um, yeah. But that's in terms of what's happening, a little bit in terms of what's happening in Donbass. Um, I do see periodically reports uh, from Donetsk and around that Ukraine is still shelling there, sometimes in the center of Donetsk. Not as hard as they were last year, but it's still ongoing. But what is interesting with regard to Ukraine is that it seems like Zelensky has been thrown under the bus. 
I personally have no no sympathy for that uh, at all. But it was it was it was predictable. You know, we saw analysts that know about um, military affairs for for months and months last year predicting Ukraine cannot win this war. It doesn't matter whose side you're on. Just uh, logically, it cannot win. It does not have the the people. It does not have the power to win the war. And so the question was, well, why is the West pumping money and weapons towards Ukraine when it's clear even to Western planners? I don't believe that the Western uh, mouthpieces that kept saying Ukraine will win. I don't believe they actually they they themselves believed that. They were just saying the line that they were told to say, or you know, for whatever benefit they were saying that. But now it's gotten to the point where. I don't know the um, the total losses of the Ukrainian forces, but the fact is they aren't going to win this war and uh, with Russia. Uh, so, yeah, the question really is like, what will happen? Um, is there going to be a backdoor peace deal? So, because that seems the most logical, given how much the West has invested financially, militarily, and propaganda-wise in Ukraine. Um, if all the eyes are distracted by what's happening in in Palestine, then this would be the ideal time for them to wrap up uh, the the war in Ukraine and at least you know not throw more men to the slaughter, you know, and ideally bring peace to the whole region. And then Zelensky and his fashionable wife hightail it to Miami to the villa he's paid for very likely with ill-gotten gains from the arms deals. Correct? Is that sort of the where the smart people are putting their bet right now? Oh, you know, I, 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 I you could be right. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I, <laughs> uh, that kind of thing just disgusts me, you know, when, when, when Ukrainians themselves, you know, because of the situation, because Zelensky didn't reach a peace deal with Russia long ago, are suffering yeah. their Ukrainians who are impoverished. So when I see, I mean, I know it's important to call them out when, you know, they've just been embezzling the money and it's not been going to what they said it was going to. It, it is important to call them out, but it just, it disgusts me so much that I kind of, I tune out <laughs> when I see these stories. Yeah, I, I do believe you're correct. Yeah, Scott Ritter is, I think he was counting houses or something. And, and Douglas McGregor told me he thought that there were probably several villas um, outside of Ukraine that he would be going to when this thing ends. Um, I want to, you're in Moscow, and I want to ask you that there, there, you know, Putin's running for president again. And I'm just wondering, um, what is the feeling on the ground there about Putin and the war in Ukraine? And has there been a dent at all in, in public sentiment about him? What are people saying there about him? I would say in general over the past year since the start of what Russia calls a special military operation last year in February, um, that that support for the president has grown. You know, of course, we're going to see the opposite in Western media. We will also see that he is dying and that several, you know, important government officials are dying or will die or have already died and are dying again. You know, they they want to create the sense of uh, destabilized, weak Russia. That is not what I'm seeing here. As for the actual percent of people who support him, I don't know. But I, I know that as I watched over the course of last year, the, the support phase grew, particularly when Moscow began, um, uh, became uh, under Ukrainian drone attacks. That's lessened, but there was a period where it was quite frequent. Uh, gosh, my, my time is kind of eludes me. It was many months ago at this point, but there, were, there was a point where the drone attacks were occurring in Moscow and in countryside fairly routinely. And you still have the, the towns closer to the Ukrainian border for the south that are routinely attacked. So I think that, um, I think that shored up more support for, for the president. 
Yeah. And what is the standard of living in, in Russia now after all of the sanctions and things that have happened as a result of the, the Ukraine invasion? Uh, from what I see, prices haven't gone up substantially. Substantially, Some prices have gone up, but uh, not like, I mean, I, I would say probably where you're at, um, you're seeing greater price hikes for food and heating and fuel, etc. Yeah. than we are here in Russia. Um, some foreign goods are no longer available, but Russia does manufacture uh, a lot, if not most of what is needed here. Um, most people who I meet, you know, on a daily basis, uh, their mood is not, you know, it's not like they're feeling choked by sanctions. People that are feeling choked by sanctions or siege are in Syria or in Gaza, but here it's really uh, not that much talked about at this point. Um, yeah. That's another point I was going to make. Um, just remind me your question, because there's something else. Well, I asked if, 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 well, at least Muscovites, where you are, if they're feeling the pinch of the West's, you know, punitive measures that were taken over the, uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Oh, I, I know what I was going to say. Well, so uh, as in addition to what I've just said, like I, I do live in Moscow Oblast, in, so it's like uh, by commuter train, it's an hour from, to the main one of the main train stations, or to the nearest metro station. It's about a, a forty-minute ride. And yeah. uh, the government, when I moved to the place where I'm renting a couple of years ago, the the trains were old but totally functional. Um, a ride from where I'm living to where I needed to go cost about 100 rubles, which uh, back then was around $1. Um, now, since then, there are there's another uh, train, slightly upgraded a train, more modern. And then since then, there's a very modern train that looks the equivalent of the Moscow Metro um, uh, that extends to the commuter lines. So basically, whenever I need to come into Moscow, uh, I, I'm maximum, it depends on the time of day, but for the most part, I only have to wait like... 10 or 15 minutes to catch a train, a high speed, excellent quality, and the price is the same. So, I mean, if a country, uh, and this is, this is the countryside, I'm not talking about Moscow proper, if, if the country was really feeling the pinch of sanctions, I don't think they would have invested in that, um, that commuter line project. And also, I had the chance to travel to Novosibirsk back in the summer, um, just for my own personal travel, which I... Okay, I'm wondering if we've lost that line. Uh, this is Trish Wood, and this is the edit, and we're going to go to a break and see if we can get Eva K. Bartlett back. Stick around. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. Last week, Donald Trump took to Truth Social to spell out why he believes it's imperative that voters pull the lever for him over Joe Biden in a little less than a year from now. The stakes in this election could not be higher. Next November, you have a choice between war, poverty, and weakness under crooked Joe Biden, or peace, prosperity, and strength under President Donald J. Trump. Just three years ago, our economy was booming, the world was safe, and America was strong. And now? Under crooked Joe Biden, the economy is in a shambles, and the world is going up in flames. Real incomes have gone down by $7,400 per family under crooked Joe. Gas prices are four, five, six, and seven dollars a gallon. Cumulative inflation is nearly 20 percent, and mortgage rates are pushing a brutal seven percent, eight percent, nine percent, ten percent, and you can't get the money. And that's not the worst part. We have war in Europe. We have wars in the Middle East. 
and we are stumbling into World War III. That's what's going to happen with this leadership, because they don't know what they're doing. The contrast could not be more stark. And all of what you just heard couldn't be more true. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT Radio Vision. The impact of a meal goes well beyond feeding our bodies. Because when people are fed, futures are nourished. Everyone deserves to live a full life. And with your help, together we can end hunger. Join the movement at feedingamerica.org slash act now. You're with Trish Wood and The Edit on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Yep, Trish Wood here back on The Edit, and we've just made contact again with Eva K. Bartlett, who is in Moscow, and sometimes the lines are a little bit glitchy, but we've got her. Um, Eva, I just wanted to move the discussion back now to Gaza, if you don't mind, because I I really... yeah, I'm very keen for your opinion on the um, the Elon Musk visit to Israel. What what did you make of that and the outcome of that? Did you see any of it in the media over there? I, I did see it. Uh, honestly, I'm, Trish, I'm struggling to keep up with the updates coming from Gaza because even though they're uh, ostensibly under a truce, Israel is still firing on and killing Palestinian civilians. But yes, I'm aware that Elon... Uh, met with Netanyahu and went to um, communities. Uh, I, I'm not 100% sure if they were communities that were affected on the October 7th. Uh, they and, were. Uh, they were. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, uh, but I, what I what I I know I've seen a lot of since then is people saying, okay, now go to Gaza, Elon, go see Gaza, because uh, obviously there's no comparison. Again, not not to, to in any way say you know, and uh, any support for civilians who, who died in Israel. But the point is there's no comparison. Um, however, what will come of this? Uh, I don't, I don't know what, what, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what he's up to. Um, I feel like the fact that he did visit only exclusively Israel um, is a statement in itself. Yeah. Well, if, as I said at the top of the show, maybe before uh, we connected with you, it feels like a bit of a climb down because he was very vocal about free speech, in a, specifically in the Israel-Gaza story, and uh, was lambasted for it, uh, was losing tons of big advertisers over it. We know he's got this new CEO, Linda, I think her name is Pecorino or something, uh, whose goal it is to kind of play the free speech game while, you know, limiting accounts that are maybe saying stuff that's controversial. So he, and I think he's given her a lot of power. So, and and also, I mean, I will say defense, in in defense of Elon, um, he could lose his business. Like if all the big advertisers are peeling off because he's taking a stand they don't like, he could lose his business. That conundrum is as old as the hills in media. But what happened in the olden days was that credible media outlets would hold the line and they would all hold the line so that advertisers couldn't jump from one paper to another paper over an issue that they were trying to control and it was actually perceived as bad form if advertisers were trying to control the content but that those are like the olden days when I was a legacy media journalist Some, sometimes things were better back then but it was shameful for advertisers to try to influence content it was frowned upon 
but now not so much. And the the guy for, you know, for all of his flaws, and he has a few, um, is trying to save his company. But what a sad way to have to do it in getting a photo op with Netanyahu and nothing about what's been happening in, in Gaza. It was a pretty, a pretty sad yeah, commentary I mean, on where we are. A despicable commentary, honestly. I mean, you look at, you look at uh, I'm sure you saw this, uh, Trish, uh, Craig Mokhabar, who was the director of the UN's and New York office yeah. for um, human rights, I think it was, I forget the actual acronym. Uh, some weeks ago, he resigned, and he'd been with them for like 30 years, and he resigned to make a statement. You know, so he's lost his job, he's lost his income, he's lost his career, but he resigned to make a statement that he could not stay with an organization that was not stopping what he called repeatedly a genocide. You know, so that's, that's integrity. And I'm sorry, you know, Elon's a, a wealthy man. If he loses his business, he'll be okay, I'm sure. I don't know. But, um, you know, it's when people are literally being blown to pieces, like and not in small numbers, yeah, I don't know. His priorities are very skewed. If that's the statement he wants to make by going and, and uh, trotting around with Netanyahu, um, it's just I, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for him at all. And I don't know about the free speech stuff because I don't know. Now I have over 200,000 followers on Twitter and almost no interactions. I routinely get people saying to me, oh, I didn't know you're still on Twitter. Oh, my, uh, a friend of mine uh, in early November said, oh, this is the first tweet of, of yours or post of yours I've seen on X since October, you know, so uh, yeah. I don't know, you know, what's going on, but my YouTube channel was entirely deleted um, after I did a thread on X, uh, and the thread was about Palestinian medics and how they worked in my experiences, when I rode in ambulances with them, they were not carrying weapons, and I, so I did a long thread with a, a number of links to my blog post in the time and my YouTube uploads, and then the next day, YouTube my channel was deleted. Whatever, I know such censorship happening everywhere. It was not monetized. That's not what this is about for me. Uh, but I don't know how the the free speech thing is working on Twitter because I'm not personally seeing it. But again, I'm not the issue here. The issue to me uh, is always about people who are um, who have who, whose voices have been taken away. You know, so yeah. the places I've reported from Palestine, Syria, Donbass. There are so many parallels, and I'm sure we discussed some of those parallels uh, regarding Donbass and Syria when we spoke last time. But, I'm, I'm, of course, here it's exponentially worse. The slaughter is exponentially worse. But we're seeing the same hypocrisy, the same virtue signaling from people without, who don't understand the situation or who are simply taking the lead from, you know, whatever social media or talk show hosts or whatever, you know, and it's... Um, uh, Elon had the chance to make a statement. Maybe he'll redeem himself. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You never know. But but you're right. I mean, um, I I am seeing things on Twitter that are, are pretty disgusting the other way, too. And they don't seem to be. I know there was one, one fairly big account there who called a Holocaust survivor a useful idiot for wanting a peace agreement between Israel and Gaza. I mean, imagine that. Even this, the that's kind of stupid, sacred words yeah. of a Holocaust survivor are no longer off limits for people, right? I, just shocking to me. But but the other thing that, about that Elon, it's interesting. Yeah. Sorry? 
No, I mean, that's disgusting, and I absolutely wouldn't support that kind of uh, talk. And I'd be interested off, off, uh, off, off um, record if you would share with me who that person was, but I know you yeah. probably don't want to name them here. But, you know, there are many Holocaust survivors or descendants of Holocaust survivors who, who have spoken out very forcefully. There was a woman named, named Hedy Epstein. She passed away many years ago, but she was very strong-worded. She's a Holocaust survivor. She was very strong-worded about Israel's siege on Gaza and what Israel was doing to Palestinians, you know? So, um, but, but to denigrate them is just uh, disgusting. Yeah, I couldn't. I mean, I thought, okay, if this is where we are now, all bets are off, as they say, you know, in the casino, right? Like you can say, if you can say that about a Holocaust survivor, then you can kind of say anything. But just getting back to your point, and this might for our, our listeners and viewers seem a little bit inside baseball. Who cares if nobody's seeing Eva's tweets? Who cares if nobody's seeing my tweets? But it's true. I don't have nearly as many followers as you, but no one ever sees what I tweet out. No one. Yeah. Uh, and people are yeah. constantly saying, wow, wow, are you still on Twitter? I'm like, yeah, I tweeted five times yesterday. And so there's yeah. real dishonesty, too, around freedom of speech on all of these social media platforms that's actually worse. Like, they, they pretend that they're edgy and cool and all free speechy, but then people who are tweeting out or making posts about things that are fact-based and legitimately challenging the current narrative get silenced in, in, in the sense that nobody sees what they're doing. And that's worse. It's more insidious because it's a, it's a game and everybody's kind of pretending, right? Last question Absolutely. in a minute. Yep. Tell me about, um, about the, 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 the host, the asymmetry of these hostage versus prisoner releases. I, I know I was talking at the top about the idea that more are being picked up in the West Bank. They release some and then more are picked up, Israel released in, their, in, the, in the West Bank. So how does that happen? Like, do they go and they raid places? Or just give me a, you know, a minute on that, because I'm quite curious how they're, re they're replacing the people they're letting go. Oh, yeah. Well, Trish, I spent eight months in the West Bank in 2007, and I saw how it plays out. Uh, villages that are protesting the Israeli apartheid wall, as it's known, um, uh, they get, they're nonviolently protesting, and Israeli uh, soldiers will come into their village at night, raid the village, barge into homes firing, and steal whomever, whether it's uh, fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, etc. Um, they also, I saw, I uh, spent a, a number of weeks in a village near Nablus, that was under a permanent curfew, how the Israelis dubbed it, meaning the same kind of scenario. Israeli jeeps, military jeeps would barge into the city, declare everybody had to be in their homes, and then they'd do these raids in the homes and take whomever they wanted. They have a system uh, of uh, ability to imprison people called administrative detention, wherein they never have to present evidence of the supposed guilt of the person, and they can keep mm. them indefinitely. And this applies to children as well. Um, it's also very easy for them to take people at checkpoints, because you know there's hundreds of military checkpoints, whether physical installations or two deep pulling up and cutting off a road um, throughout the West Bank. And so at any of these checkpoints, under some false pretext, they can either simply detain a Palestinian civilian for hours on land, or they can take them. I saw a Palestinian medic in Nablus. His ID was taken. This is during an Israeli raid into that city in 2007. They took his, they wanted to see his ID, and then they took it and held it and took him as a uh, human shield. You know, and this is a Eva, we got to go now. I'm sorry. The music says it's time, and thanks for enlightening us on that. <laughs> I'm Trish Wood. This is the edit, and that was Eva K. Bartlett from Moscow, and we'll see you soon.